Welcome, Welcome to the Bacon Game Sports Pod. Your source for the latest on baseball, football, and whatever else he feels like talking about. Get ready. Here is your host, Jesse. Hey guys, what's up? I know you just heard that banger new intro that I got. It's pretty sick. Um, had it professionally done. Not a big deal. Um, this is going to be a longer podcast, I think. Um, I don't think I'm going to cover everything I want to cover in this one specifically. So I think I'll probably um, do another one on Thursday or maybe like Saturday if I get the chance uh, just to finish up the rest of the stuff I have for baseball and football. Um, so yeah, uh, I actually wanted to start this off with some... This is when I started writing the script last Wednesday or Tuesday when Dave Gettleman had some really bad takes. This is probably like old hat, old news by now, but he said that the top four rushing leaders um, in the NFL were playoff teams, and there's just obviously so much wrong with that. It's just like the basic uh, correlation does not equal causation. Like Because you run the ball usually means you're ahead, and if you're ahead a lot and you win a lot of games, you're in the playoffs and you'll be a rushing leader. That's basically all it means. And Gettleman's, I can't believe an executive at, at as high of a level that he's at would, would make that blunder, wouldn't make the mistake. It's, it's honestly ridiculous. Um, there was another thing about T.O. said that, I think on Twitter, that you should replace uh, Dak Prescott with Brady. Although it might be a cheaper option, it would really be a downgrade considering where Brady is at in his career and where Dak is at in his career. Anyway, enough of the little football uh, memes. Let's go on to baseball. There's a lot. We just had the uh, pre-arbitration negotiations end and arbitration actually start which was Friday heading into the weekend. So you might have missed it if you weren't paying attention to like ESPN or Twitter four days ago, right? Um, so let's get into that stuff. Okay, I actually lied. We have to cover the big, biggest news, probably overshadowed all the arbitration stuff, was the Astros punishment uh, handed down from the commissioner, uh, I think on Monday. I'm pretty sure it was Monday. I, I read the whole nine-page document. It You really just need to read what the punishments are. It describes basically everything... Uh, that went on during the Astros in the 2017 season and that stopped in the 2018 season and 2019 season. Uh, but you, you re- I don't really think you need to read it. You can probably get just like a TLDR from almost any credible sports writer on, on Twitter or uh, on most websites, I think. But anyway, um, let's let's talk about this fallout. Uh, I was happy personally that Beltran wasn't implicated. And in, in the report, you'd read that no players are going to be um, handed out punishment because of this. I think that was just an executive decision by the commissioner or by his office. Just no one's getting punished. Only coaches and GMs and people in the front office. Um, anyway, so the actual punishment was, firstly, the Astros will be fined $5 million um, by the commissioner's office, and the Astros are going to forfeit their first and second round picks in 2020 and 2021. And if they don't have a pick in either of those two years, it just gets pushed back. So, like, say they don't have a pick in 2021 then uh, they'll lose a pick, they'll lose a first round pick in 2022, right? Um, so, I mean, that I think that's pretty severe for the organization. I'm, I'm usually come at this baseball stuff with uh, from an organizational standpoint, and that's what I'll be doing a lot of uh, the arbitration stuff will be will be on, at an organizational level, or what I'm, you know, criticizing or describing will be more slanted towards that anyway. Um, so yeah, that, that was the punishment for the org. Then we had Besides from the organization, we had Hinch suspended for one year, um, who was, he was similarly fired. I think that was like a half an hour, not even after this uh, was handed down. Uh, the owner of the Astros had a press conference. He announced that Hinch was fired. Um, and the GM who built that Astros team and kind of built the Astros into what they, up into what they are now, 
Jeff Ludlow uh, was suspended for one year. He was also fired by the Astros. That was a pretty big deal. Um, the former assistant GM was suspended for one year, and he can't do anything in, in the MLB for a year. He was the guy who was fired, if you remember, for, uh, I, I believe it was sexist comments um, directed at a female reporter. Uh, he, and he was fired last year, so he wasn't currently on the Astros organization. Uh, so those that was handed out. Um, those are the punishments handed out to like the individual people, and it was a manager and part of the front office, or and part of the former front office. Also, there have been reports, multiple reports, suggesting that Alex Cora is going to be implicated in this scandal as well. Um, he, I, I honestly can't see him getting less than a year suspension from the league, uh, and he'll probably be fired as well. But really, regarding this, I felt as though it was a pretty harsh punishment. If you're, I mean, we've seen cheating scandals before. Uh, in sports, right? We had Deflategate, we had a few other scandals in like the early 2000s uh, or two, 2010s, and I don't think anything was as harsh as taking away draft picks. I, I know I know, MLB draft picks aren't as coveted as, as NFL draft picks, and I guess this cheating scandal was a lot bigger, but man, this sent a, a statement for me. This was, this was pretty harsh in my opinion, and it looks like that opinion isn't shared by former players or by the media on Twitter, really, because that's where I spend most of my time gathering my information, and I think just on like websites like CBS, ESPN, Yahoo, I think people thought that this wasn't harsh enough, and I probably disagree. This is about as harsh as I, I thought you could get, but um, considering you know we've had cheating scandals in the past, I, I was just I was very surprised that, that this is the punishment. Um, but anyway, let's let's get into the arbitration stuff because I think that's more interesting to be honest. Okay, let's start off this arbitration discussion with Mookie Betts and the Red Sox. Uh, he received $27 million from the club, which is a record deal according to CBS Sports. DeGrom had the uh, the largest jump in salary from $9.6 million last year to $17 million. Um, and Mookie did, in fact, get $20 million last year, last, <clears throat> last year which was a $9.5 million raise. This is the largest like single... Uh, season contract in in lieu of arbitration that we've had in the MLB. Jackie Bradley also got eleven million, which is a lot considering vets like Brett Gardner got sixteen mil and Purcell got ten mil. Um, but I think I think it's appropriate. Um, he's such a good defensive replacement for the Red Sox, and he can really showed he can slug last year, and he's still very young. So I guess the Red Sox in a big market can afford it. So I'm not like too critical of the of the Bradley thing. Mookie has to be signed. He has to be kept here. There's like, God, they, they, they shouldn't deal him. I know there was rumors, and the rumors have died down since the Nolan Arenado possible news or his discussion or his trade discussion, um, which I don't think is really that real either. Um, I just don't think you can let Betts walk. So signing him for these short-term deals are fine, but you got to get a long-term deal hammered out because you need to keep Mookie there. <laughs> He's, I, I want to say a generational talent, but maybe I wouldn't go there yet. I, I might go there. We'll see. Anyway, let's move on. On to the Diamondbacks. Um, David Peralta got a three-year contract, um, and he's 32 years old. And I know I've talked about Arizona before on the podcast, that it's it's kind of odd for them to sign older players, especially a 32-year-old to a three-year deal that might last, you know, until the end of his career, unless he gets like a one-year, you know, vet deal somewhere else. Um, I just feel like it's odd for Arizona, considering I don't know where they want to be next year. If they want to kind of compete, but like kind of not really, because I, I, I feel like they have a very young roster, except for these outliers like Peralta. But anyway, um, he hit 275 last year and had an OPS of 804. Um, there really isn't much else to be excited about with him, though. I, I think he's fine and probably 
will start most of the year in the outfield and probably be like an okay fantasy option and like a deep league five outfielder roto league as like a bench player he'll probably be fine um but i don't know it's it's just weird from the club perspective right to sign him for so long when you're when you trade away cranky and you try and go younger it, it just it, it it's a little weird for me anyway um Robbie Ray settled for uh, $9.43 million, which I think is pretty good news if you're a Diamondbacks fan. Uh, he's, he's probably worth more than that, I think, or at least pretty close to that. He's 28 years old, um, which I think is like a perfect year for, or a perfect age for you to sign him for like a, a nice four-year deal. He's shown you enough. He's still young, and he can um, you can really use him to like build around your organization, someone, someone like that who's, who's that age. So I think it's kind of a mistake not to sign him for a long-term deal. Um, he had one of his worst years for ERA last year, but um, his uh, strike per nine, strikeouts per nine was pretty insane. Uh, he finished uh, with 234 total strikeouts and a 12.13 K to nine ratio, which is like about average in his career. But I still think that's really good, especially uh, for someone pitching for like a young and upcoming club. Uh, I always thought Robbie was kind of undervalued um, at a time where you know, he's probably seen as a depreciating value because he had a career bad year. Um, I think it would be probably a good time as a club for you, for someone to sign him um, and get him to a long-term deal. Uh, his numbers can be a little over place year to year, just in terms of, you know, everything from ERA to whip to strikeouts, um, team like wins, even though that's not a real category you should care about for a pitcher. Um, they, they might be all over the place, but I'm, I'm still a pretty big fan of, uh, of Robbie Ray, especially in fantasy. I love getting all the strikes, strikeouts in like the 10th round. Huge fan of that. If, if he goes there, which I, I think he will, considering he's coming off a pretty poor year after he was hyped up two years ago, I think he'll probably be a pretty good grab in whatever round he goes, which I assume is double-digit rounds, right? Okay, let's move on. Move on to the Cubs, who had some pretty interesting players reach a deal. Javi Baez uh, got a $10 million deal, which apparently, per Twitter, <laughs> was more than people thought he would get from the Cubs, who were trying to cut payroll. But this is a steal, right? Like, Am, am I crazy? Can, can someone help me? Uh, I'm taking crazy pills, all the good memes. Uh, he broke out. In 2018, Addison, uh, excuse me, Javi Baez, not Addison Ruffle. Um, he followed up with a good enough 2019 year, and I remember him, he was pretty hot uh, in the first two months of the season. Uh, I personally, if I was like a GM or part of the front office, I would strike while the iron is hot and get this deal inked as soon as possible. There really, I don't think, is much else to say about this. They need to get a long-term deal done with their star player, who was a top prospect coming up through the minors and has basically proven that in the MLB so far. So I'd, I would be looking to ink a long-term deal. Uh, let's move on to Chris Bryant, who has, you know, slipped his production since the beginning of his career in 2016, 2017, but I think bounced back in a nice way to the tune of 31 home runs and 70 RBI, 78 RBIs, which not isn't exactly peak Ryan, uh, Bryant when he was Rookie of the Year, um, but I think is good enough for his age to be a mainstay in the lineup for years to come. There's also another interesting um, piece of, I guess, litigation going on here. Um, Bryant uh, and the Players Union have filed um, a grievance over alleged service manipulation time. Uh, Bryant was called up in mid-April in 2015, I think when he was called up in 2015, or 2016. I have to check that, whatever. Um, basically, he was called up in mid-April, which delayed his ability to be a free agent by one year, by one day. Um, it was a good move by the club, obviously, and teams have done that pretty consistently over the past when they want to have more control over players. But um, 
it, it, it obviously seems, seems pretty transparent, right? Uh, it would be a good move by the club. I think that for sure. Um, and I, I checked to see if there was any precedence on this issue and I was like unable to come up with a good enough answer. Uh, but if, if Bryant wins this case, um, we could see a ripple effect throughout the MLB forcing clubs to actually call players when they are ready rather than delay delaying obvious stars so they can be kept under team control for like more, more time. Right. Uh, but I think this is a pretty hard case to win, right? At least on the surface. I don't, I don't know much about, you know, what the NFL players organization or the lawyers that they retain would, would be able to say in order to prove this. I guess they, it would probably be a lot of like subpoenaing text messages or, you know, getting witnesses or I guess just people in the front office to talk about this in an open manner. That might be good enough, but I, I maybe that's not even right. Maybe that wouldn't even work. I don't know. It should be interesting to follow this. And I, I didn't know what's happening until I did some research about uh, Chris Bryant and his free agency status. So, you know, something interesting to keep an eye on. It could it could be like a landmark case for the uh, Major League Players Association. Major League, yeah, baseball. So Major League Players Association? Whatever the union is that the um, Major, League play, Major League Baseball players are a part of. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Contreras uh, got 4.5 mil. Schwaber got $7 million. Um, the Schwaber deal seems like a pretty big steal. Uh, he seems like he's getting better each year, and especially as a fantasy option, I feel like people are pretty, uh, I wouldn't call it, like, stunned or shell-shocked, but like, people will still remember when he was supposed to be really good and wasn't. Same thing with Robbie Ray, right? But Schwarber's just getting better. He did 38 home runs last year, um, and he's only 26. Uh, I don't know if, like, the Cubs just don't have a spot for him because he's probably just better as a DH, right? But... I don't know, trading him might be good to an AL club or hoping and praying the NL institutes a DH so they can just stick him there would, would be probably preferable. So I guess that's why they keep him in arbitration on these one-year deals just to see what happens. But if you can sign him to a long-term deal at a reasonable price, like $7 million a year, I think I would take it in close to a heartbeat. Yeah, close. Um, yeah, so with all these with all these young guys, all these young stars on Chicago, which I think they all all three, four guys that I mentioned are stars. I guess it makes sense why they didn't sign Castellanos, even though they traded for him last year and didn't make the playoffs, which is pretty sad. But I, I, I love Castellanos. He, he had his six lash line with a, a 1.002 OPS. And I, he's 28 and he plays the hot corner really well. I, I don't know how he's still a free agent, but I'll probably talk about that next time I talk about baseball and, and the free agents still out there, like Marcelo Zuna and Josh Donaldson, who I get is old, but had a crazy season last year. Uh, anyway, that's enough for the Cubs. Let's move on. Moving on to the Indians. They inked two important stars in Clevenger at $4.1 million and Lindor at $17.5 million to avoid arbitration. I could argue, honestly, that both those players are leading stars on their respective side of the game, pitching and hitting or fielding. Uh, Lindor is considered, uh, or considering that he started the season late on uh, 420, Blazing Nerds, um, had a better year than Jose Ramirez, and Clevenger had... Uh, the best year on a per-game basis after uh, the club dealt Kluber and Carrasco's unfortunate cancer. Um, and Bieber being just like a really good pitcher, but just not better than Clevenger on a game-by-game basis. Uh, with the Indians' payroll being way below league average, 25th overall, according to Sports Track, this team can afford to retain its talent, especially once Santana, Carlos Santana, and his $20 million-plus contract is likely negotiated down or is moved on from. So, I think Lindor and Clevenger overall were pretty good, uh, pretty good gets that they're still on the team, which they, I think they obviously would be. They wouldn't be traded or anything like that, but inking them to long-term deals would be appropriate considering these are the two best guys on the club 
by far. So the Rockies were unable to get a deal done with Story. He proved me wrong this year after having an up-and-down career, um, and apparently there's issue um, why he didn't get signed and, why, and he's, he's going to arbitration is there was about 700, they were about 700k off, which to be fair is about the same amount of money as he made last year from the team. So I kind of see where the Rockies are coming from with all the trade rumors circulating, circulating around Arenado and the bad deals they've signed in the past, like Ian Desmond and Wade Davis, they come to mind pretty, pretty easily. And I, I mean, I'd rather, I'd call Ian Desmond underwhelming rather than bad. It's just a large price tag for not as much production as they've gotten out of other players that they've paid less. Um, but you honestly, the, the Rockies just should have coughed up the extra less than $1 million to keep your young star after he, you know, hasn't made that much money from you over his short, albeit short career, but his, I would call it star. I was going to say star spangled. I don't know if that's appropriate, but his star studded or, you know, calling him an all-star is, is true, obviously, but his I guess star power, you know, he's just been really good. And I think quabbling over $1 million that might hurt your ability to negotiate in the future is a really bad call. So they probably should have just settled this at, you know, maybe 700K, which really isn't that much. Um, that's all I want to talk about for the Rockies. So let's move on to the next squad. Next team I want to talk about, or rather return to talking about, is the Astros. Uh, Springer is going to arbitration while Correa got an $8 million deal. Uh, the club and Springer are apparently about $5 million apart, which is the biggest gap I've seen so far this year in arbitration discussions. Um, the, the payroll for Houston, I think, is ballooned pretty high up. Uh, it's close to luxury tax, if not over it. Um, but looking forward, Verlander will be 39 at the end of his deal, and Greggy will be 38. So keeping Springer seems appropriate going forward, even with the massive payroll. You can pay him once your other studs are gone. Um, I, I, I understand too, looking forward when, when I do this in terms of being like the GM or looking on the perspective from the front office, uh, that things can change pretty drastically in fears, but just looking forward, generally what they have now, they, they can afford to pay what these guys are, uh, what these guys are asking for and what they, uh, what they should be making, honestly. Uh, he's, he's probably worth it. Um, but I guess if you're an Astros fan out there and you disagree, I would love to hear a strong reason why he doesn't deserve the extra $5 million that the Astros aren't coughing up. Okay, so yeah, we have to talk about the Dodgers, who are sending four players to arbitration, which is more than any other squad. No team has even sent three to arbitration. Uh, we can, or for the sake of this, we're going to ignore other contracts because they got Bellinger uh, to settle for an $11.5 million deal, which is the largest for a first-time ever eligible player, which is honestly no surprise if you follow baseball at all. Um... But let's see where the team is at compared to where the pending uh, arbitration players are at. Pedro Baez, uh, the team was at $3.5 million and the player was at 4 Max Muncy, the team was at 4 and the player was at 4.67. Jock Peterson, uh, the team was at $7.75 million and the player was at 9.5. A pretty big discrepancy there, I would say. Chris Taylor, uh, the team was at $5.25 million and the player was at $5.8 million. Uh, so t- to my surprise, the, the Dodgers are actually projected to be under the luxury tax, even with these contracts being, even with the higher side of these contracts being included by like a good 40 mil, which I think is, is pretty big news to me. But if, if you look at the squad, a lot of their guys are young who, who took this team, you know, deep into the playoffs, right? Uh, so I, I was just surprised that they were, they could be that low under the, the tax. Considering I think of them, the Yankees and the Astros as the biggest spenders, I, I was, I was just surprised, but it's good to know. Um, let's see. Uh, I I don't think they're in a bad spot to sign any of these guys to a long-term deal, but I guess 
not something that makes sense. Muncy's probably the guy you want to look up uh, the fastest and for a long-term deal, uh, especially since uh, most of their, you know, highest-played players like Turner and Jansen and Pollock are all, like, to be off the team probably when uh, Muncy is, like, available to, to be a free agent. And they're all getting pretty high, uh, high up in age. Turner is 35 right now. And it'll probably be worth lower than the $20 million he's getting right now by the end of his deal. Uh, Jansen's probably not worth the $18 million price tag. I'm sure he inked that deal probably two years ago when he was insane and had like a lower than one ERA, right? Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, also, um, Pollock is, is probably not worth the $18 million price tag right now with all the injuries that he suffered over the past few years. But we'll see. Uh, it honestly surprised me, I think. The, the biggest surprise out of these four is that Chris Taylor is getting the most money out of any of the team, can anyone on the team here, because um, his batting isn't, or his batting stats aren't that great. But, I mean, I guess you place a premium probably on a club that's already good to having a utility player that can hit um, well, like uh, Chris Taylor. So I, I, I guess that's why he's probably uh, worth, you know, one of the most, or at least, you know, higher than I would expect. Uh, P- Peterson would be probably getting the most, right? But... Chris Taylor, just he he doesn't really do it for me other than he can play almost every position. I, and I guess well he can play the uh, the other positions like second base, shortstop, and outfield pretty well. So I guess that's why he's so high in my opinion. You you wouldn't know by just looking at his his stats or anything like that. So anyway, that's interesting for the Dodgers. Let's see how that shakes out in arbitration. Which I I wonder how long it takes. I don't actually know. Probably like a week or two. We'll check back soon. We got another quick one going on here with Josh Hader um, and the Brewers. Moving to a closing role, which which Hader did last year, is is pretty difficult and usually doesn't always result in uh, good outcomes, but he did a brilliant job moving over. He should probably get paid the reported $16 million he wants, even if the team only offered $4.15. I, I think that's kind of low, honestly. Um, I get that they weren't even close, but in a case like this, where you probably want to sign Hader to a long-term deal, considering he was an all-star the past two years, I might err on the side of good faith here so you don't lose this guy when your payroll really isn't that much. I know Milwaukee isn't a huge uh, market and they probably can't have a huge payroll, but this team is probably built to win now with really good players. Um, and I don't think you want Hater going anywhere. So it just seems like a, a not good faith move. And possibly if I was Hater, would consider moving on from this club so I can get a lot more money in a bigger market. And, uh, you know, this arbitration nonsense really is a, uh, possibly going to cause issues. So I'm, I'm not a fan of it from a club perspective. I don't know what Hader's going to do, especially if they're, you know, in the playoffs next year, which I can easily see Milwaukee being. He, he might want to stay and be be here with his, his teammates. Well, I'm not sure, but um, I just think this letting Hader go to arbitration is, is probably a bad move by the club. Okay, so the Twins are a pretty interesting one to talk about. Um, they're going to arbitration with Jose Barrios, and they signed Sano to a three-year extension. Uh, and I, I want to talk about Snow first. I, I didn't realize he was only 26 years old. I would have thought he was at least pushing 30 by now. I, I really don't know why, except for the fact that he probably just started being a, you know, fantasy player household name when I started playing fantasy a few years ago. So that's, that's probably why I think he's so much older than he actually is. Um, I've always, you know, now, now's a good time to talk about how I feel about these Sinotai players. And I've always kind of seen low average, high OBP, big power guys is not great in terms of you know, fantasy, you know, you, you take one of those and then you probably take another guy who it's for average and scores a lot of runs. And, you know, you can mitigate that a lot. And I guess you can kind of do that in a baseball lineup, but I don't know, having someone like Sano as your cleanup hitter is always scary to me because if he doesn't 
hit the ball, he's basically useless in a situation where you probably have your first, one of your first three guys on base, right? So I just found that kind of weird. Um, but if Sano can improve to like a, like a consistent 250 average with a 350 OBP, he'll be well worth the three years, $10 million that I think he's got. And I would take that like in a heartbeat as a GM and an owner. Um, anyway, talking about Berrios, he seems like a guy I would like to lock up. Um, but even after two very strong years, I'm not a hundred percent certain. I, I personally would, would want to ink him to a long-term deal. So arbitration seems appropriate considering we saw guys like, uh, Jose Ramirez be really good for two years and then kind of drop off in their last year. So I, I guess keeping him in, in arbitration or these one-year deals is okay by my book, but it's something to keep an eye on because going to arbitration is not always a great thing, especially with a young star. And I think he is a young star. I think most people would agree with me there. So um, we'll see how the situation shakes out. But I guess I'm just a fan of the Sano deal so far, as long as he keeps up his average and his OBP. Um, and I think inking a deal with Barrios for a long term would, would really be a beneficial for this club. Anyway, so I'm going to talk about the Mets and the Yankees in the same segment because living in New York and being a Mets fan, I just, I just know so much already. I've retained so much information from last season and generally that I think I can talk pretty off the cuff about them. So no one's going to arbitration on both teams because honestly they have most of the money in the world, right? Obviously Yankees have more, but you know, whatever, still it's fine. Uh, both teams have pretty huge priorities right now in uh, their arbitration years. And if I were the Yanks, I would be okay with uh, Paxton getting like $12 million uh, for, for a deal Gary Sanchez getting five is fine, um, mostly because his defense is so atrocious and they can't put him at DH because they have so many young players that are good and Giancarlo is their DH, right? Uh, but anyway, um, Judge is uh, also out there and I, I just, I know I know he's going to be able to um, to get a long-term deal with the Yankees. They're just keeping him around, paying him, I guess, as little as possible for as long as possible because once he signs a long-term deal, it's not going to be this $11.25 million or just about what he's getting now, it's going to be at least $20, $25 million a year, right? I mean, he's, and he'll deserve it for sure. Uh, even, even though the Yankees are like $45 million over the luxury cap uh, tax, it's it's fine. They can afford it, absolutely. Uh, let's talk about the Mets. So um, I think above all else, they need to lock up Syndergaard and Conforto. Diaz is in arbitration, and it would be nice to get him to a long-term deal, and I would love to sign him now while his value is pretty depreciated considering he's only 25 um, and I know he's, I know he's going to improve and any year besides this year, when he was playing on the mats, he would be a marked improvement on the bullpen from last year. So I would heavily, heavily prioritize getting him signed. And he was also a huge part of that deal that brought over Cano and him. So getting him in there would be a pretty big deal. Stroman, um, is a pretty, Marcus Stroman is a pretty interesting one to have hit arbitration. He got $9.5 million. Um, if he has another good year, like he had a ha a good half year coming over from the Blue Jays for the Mets, we could see him sign to like a three or four year deal in, in the in the middle of his career and be the fourth or fifth best guy in the rotation, backing up the two the two star pitchers. So this is really kind of a prove it time because I I know the Mets are gonna be able to give him, you know, a, a nice three or four year deal, especially considering they signed guys like Waka and um and uh, Rick Porcello to to be starters in their rotation. So, you know, getting Stroman uh, after those guys are gone or after guys like Jed Lowry or Cespedes or Familiar are gone, you know, we could, we could easily see him getting a long-term deal and, and a good amount of money. Um, and obviously Porcello and Waka, Waka could be gone if we decide to keep, 
uh, Stroman on, on like a longer term deal and they don't want to spend as much money. But we'll see how new ownership, which I think comes into play in 2021. We'll see how, how much they want to spend because I have a feeling they want to spend a lot of money, right? Um, I mean, speaking of just generally like Porcella and Waka, they... They, I think they, I haven't talked about it too much, especially on Twitter. I'd like to just give my thoughts right now. I, I always like adding veteran depth, especially to a bullpen that was so bad last year. It just, it feels good in case someone like Syndergaard, who's known to be hurt, and, you know, the rest of the Mets pitching staff, like, um, I mean, DeGrom even to a certain extent, right? And uh, definitely, what's his name? Steven Matz. You know, it's, it's always good to have a guy like walk in the bullpen, come in and, and be like a spot starter for a few a few weeks or even a month. Uh, so I like that. And also the fact that Porcello and Waka aren't Jason Vargas, I'm pretty okay with having them come in. We also still have, or the Mets also still have Gesellman, who could always fill in for that. And I, I just love having those guys in the bullpen that can come in and, and be starters. So just getting that depth, I just want to get that on the record. I, I like those ads. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Um, I'm going to move on to the last team I think we're going to cover for uh, for baseball arbitration right now. I'll I'll talk more about it the next time I record, um, I just couldn't get to it all. There, there's a lot going on in this podcast. We still have to talk about football, um, all the things that have been the NFL in the past uh, week since I haven't been on the podcast. Uh, so I'm just going to cover the athletics, and then we're going to move on to football. Let's move on to the Oakland Athletics. Um, I was actually going to skip them at first, but then I noticed they had some pretty big contracts to sign, or, or bigger than what I would expect. Um, and I think, you know, once once we cover or once we look at the... Astros, I'm sorry, the, the athletics here, uh, we'll see why arbitration is so good for clubs and they can sign these players to one-year deals and it's 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 perfect for the club, right? Um, they signed uh, Hendricks to a $5.3 million deal, Marcus Simeon to a $13 million deal, Canna to a, or Can, I don't know, C-A-N-H-A to a $4.8 million year and all three of those guys had breakout years. Hendricks had a below two ERA, Simeon, I don't know what happened. He's like 30, 31 years old, and he cranked 30-plus home runs and had just a career year. And and so did uh, Can. Uh, can it, Can? I don't know. It reminds me of Kanan from Star Wars. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so they obviously didn't sign these guys to, to long-term deals, and, and I wouldn't because I wasn't—I wouldn't be so sure that these breakout years are going to be what these players are like in the future. And they obviously would, in any other sport or a sport like football, where they don't have arbitration, they would be asking for monster deals like Derrick Henry's probably going to ask for in the offseason, right guys? <laughs> um, anyway, um, the the team though, I mean, speaking of the athletics generally, they do have a lot of young talent and they made the playoffs last year, even though they only were in it for one game, which I think is a, a ridiculous, I'm going to go on a little bit of tired, but I think it's a ridiculous notion for the MLB to have a classify a playoff game where it's, it's a one game playoff. N- they never play one game series anywhere else in the regular season of baseball. Then they expect a team to like the, or the better team to make the playoffs after playing a one game series. It should at least be like a three game series. And I, I know that's going to tire out the pitchers and give like a huge advantage to clubs that don't have to play in those games. But man, having the two wildcard teams play each other in a one game series is just insane. That's just not how baseball is played currently. And I, I find it really weird and odd that that's the way it's set up. What, what my solution would be is to either expand the playoffs or contract the playoffs. That That's really the only way you can do it. And I think expanding the playoffs would be a lot better because I don't like the fact that you can have teams like the Mets who had, uh, what was 86 wins last year and not make the playoffs? I mean, I think they deserve to make the playoffs. I, I, I don't like that. So I think three playoff teams or three wildcard teams would be a better solution. But I'm here for two playoff teams. Just you, you can't keep it at five. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Anyway, I'm pretty... I'd also, you know, I'm... On Twitter, I've been pretty excited about the Chicago White Sox. 
I'm also pretty excited about the Athletics young talent. Uh, I mean, the guys that I've mentioned who signed those deals, plus the rest of their pitching staff who has been good, and when Jesus Lazardo finally stays healthy this year and gets to come up and play, this team is going to be hopefully rocking. And, and I, I'm I'm just keeping my eye out, eye out for them because. I'm a fan. I've actually, I've kind of always had like a, a weird affinity for Oakland. I love Moneyball, uh, or the movie at least, and I, I love like the early 2000s team with like Giambi and Jaha and Ben Grieve and all those guys, and you know, that they had that sick rotation. Uh, I don't know if it was like 2000s, but like Barry Zito, um, Tim Tim Hudson, uh, Kevin Napier, all those guys were so good. Any, anyway, um, that was a little digression, but that's all um, I really had time for this week coming up uh, with uh, baseball talking points. Um, I'll get to the rest of them the next time I record, but let's, let's move on to football. Okay. Finally moving on to football. Um, there's a good amount to talk about in football as well. I think flying under the radar was that the Eagles fired Mike Groh after reports suggested that he would be back with the team. Uh, it's the third offensive coordinator that Peterson's gone through since he took over. Interesting to note. I'm not sure what that means for Wentz. Uh, and his development, but P- Peterson's a good coach. I, I trust whoever's going to take over at that position, but it's interesting to note that that happened because um, it flew under the radar, and I don't think many people reported on it. It's always important to keep track of the hirings besides head coach, which I know a lot of people don't pay attention to because in most cases, guys like that are calling offensive plays. Uh, anyway, let's let's move on. John, John Filippo is out as a Jaguars, Jaguars offensive coordinator, which I think is a pretty big shock for me. Um, he hasn't really lived up to expectations, I guess, considering the Jaguars finished 26th in total offense this year. Um, and while I wouldn't say I love the offense this year, Minshew seemed like he was doing really well in it and flourishing. So if, if he isn't as good next year, we could maybe point to this as a reason why, possibly. But I think the real reason why uh, Filippo is gone is because he was initially brought in to pair up with Nick Foles, because on, uh, in... I guess during yeah during Nick Foles' playoff run when they won the Super Bowl, DiFilippo was the offensive coordinator, so that's probably why he was there. And since Foles likely isn't to be with the team next year, uh, DiFilippo is already gone. And I think I think that's just another indication, right? Of Foles might not be with the team, or at least he'll be the backup, right? And moving forward with Minshew. Uh, anyway, um, I'm not sure who they want to bring in besides, um, or to replace DiFilippo. Uh, I thinking maybe. Garrett or Kitchens would be my optimal choice, possibly, just because their names are recognized. And I, I always thought, I mean, Kitchens did a great job as offensive coordinator two years ago, right? And Jason Garrett's always had a good offense. I thought, I mean, he's better personnel. Uh, and I, I guess just like the biggest problem that people had with Garrett is he wasn't aggressive or did poor time management time management uh, during games and just stuff during games that he won't have to do if he's the offensive coordinator, right? So having him win would, would be pretty cool for me. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, I think that's it in terms of what I talk, want to talk about for offensive, uh, coordinators and stuff. Cause now we can move on to the head coaching hire, the last head coaching hire of the year, unless something crazy happens. Browns hired Kevin Stefanski, first time head coach. I'm not sure how much I like this considering the turnstile that is the Cleveland uh, head coaching <laughs> position. Um, but I, I think Stefanski is a numbers and analytics guy. He's young. He's 37. Um, it's too bad that Dorsey isn't there, so they both could have been calculator nerds for life or just analytics nerds for life, right? Uh, but I I mean, and I, I personally would have loved that, obviously, for the Browns. But 
I'm just, I'm not sure that I feel great about hiring Stefanski. I feel like with a team as talented as the Browns are, they would want to bring in a more seasoned head coach in order to control all the talent there and probably like not have to call offensive plays and just be like a CEO type. Although I have heard it thrown around that Stefanski is kind of a CEO type. So maybe that'll be good. And just another thing that I heard about <laughs> Stefanski was in an interview that the Browns released on Twitter and on their website, which is shocking for me personally. And Stefanski loves the fullback and he's all about that hard nosed football which is like the opposite of what a, a, a analytics guy would I think would be considering the league is trending towards passing, right? Uh, so that was just like a little weird, him liking the fullback so much and saying it's an integral part of the team, which he did say in the interview. I, j- I just found that very weird. Um, and I don't <laughs> really uh, understand how, how those two things, being an analytics guy and loving the fullback and loving the hard-nosed game of running the ball, you know, kind of are married together or how they would work together. But it's interesting. We'll see how Stefanski does. I'm, I'm not ready to judge him really yet because I haven't seen him do anything as a head coach. So we'll see. Uh, let's talk about the games. Games in the order by which they've happened. So um, first game on Saturday was the San Fran and Minnesota game. Um, fun facts, I was actually at a wedding Saturday, so I wasn't able to catch every play of the game, although I have watched it since on the condensed version. Um, but anyway, um, I, I mean, I also streamed the game a good amount on my phone just watching it because <laughs> uh, that's uh, what I do. I stream it on YouTube TV. It's, it's really crystal clear audio or um, audio and video, really. And I did that, like, not on Wi-Fi. So it was, pr- it was pretty sweet. Um, anyway, let's take a listen from our sponsor, YouTube TV. Just kidding. That was a really bad joke. Um, my, like, next goal for this podcast is to get, like, 10 concurrent listeners or viewers or whatever, not to get any kind of sponsorship. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, I, I think San Fran, after beating Minnesota so soundly, became my favorite for the Super Bowl, and after, I mean, watching Green Bay as well, this is all, you know, after watching all of the games, but anyway, just them, them beating Minnesota so soundly, and so appropriately, and so, just, they were so well coached, I just love everything San Fran does, they have such a talented defense, um, it's definitely the best defense in the playoffs, even better than the Titans, and uh, the offense doesn't really rely on one player like Derrick Henry to win the game. So I'm a bigger fan of the 49ers than I am of the Titans. And I think we all knew that, I mean, the NFC had a lot better teams than the AFC coming in. But even now with Derrick Henry running all over the place, I'm still a huge fan. Um, anyway, let's, uh, let, I mean, we, I, I don't need to talk, I don't think that much about how well the 49ers did. It was just a dominant performance by them, right? Um, I, what I really kind of want to do is talk about, I mean, real quick about the Vikings and what they need to do in the off season, what they need to do moving forward. And then I'll talk a little bit about the 49ers moving forward. Um, but the Vikings need help at the secondary, at quarterback really, since Xavier Rhodes has gone down every year since he was an all pro. Um, I'd also look for them to make moves on the offensive line, like almost every other team in the NFL, because they need help there (laughs) just like every other squad. Right. Um, but the fact that they have their core under center or under contract, not under center, that's a football, I'm getting my football terms confused. Uh, just the fact that they have a, uh, the, this, the, the personnel like Daniel Hunter and, um, Diggs and I was going to say Hunter Renfro, different white receiver, Adam Thielen under contract for so long, guys like that. Um, and Anthony Barr, all those guys, they're under contract for a, a good long time. And I, th- I think seeing this core play together for the next like three or four years is, is really going to be um, pretty 
pretty good for Minnesota, and I, I feel like they'll be consistently in the playoffs for the next two to three years, three or four years. So looking forward, if you're a Minnesota fan, I'm pretty happy with where they, where they went. They, they probably do need a third receiver and a fourth receiver, although I liked Ola B.C. Johnson. He did fine, but I didn't see, I don't think I've seen enough tape yet to like call him someone as a safe number three, especially when Thielen and Diggs are hurt fairly often or hurt fairly often this year. Um, yeah, so the Vikings will be interesting to watch in the offseason. They've, they've got cap room and they've got draft capital, but they need cornerbacks for sure. And this is a deep cornerback class, I think. So I expect them to draft one probably in the first round. Uh, anyway, for, for the 49ers moving forward, I think this is probably a Super Bowl-bound team. I had the Packers, and I still think the Packers can win just like a 30% chance the Packers win, like a 70% chance the 49ers win, and dominate probably most of those wins. I don't think the Packers will dominate the 49ers. Just, they're better overall. Sherman's probably top five quarterback this year, maybe top three. Um, the defensive line is probably one of the best in the NFL. And if they do get to play, uh, the, uh, excuse me, if they do get to play the Titans for some unholy reason, I, I think they'll be, have a really good matchup. Because uh, stopping Derrick Henry in the backfield is paramount before he's able to get up to speed and just truck everyone, truck defenders and push them off like they're Marshawn Lynch 20... 10 guys, right? Like, when, when he made that beast mode run, right? When he broke eight tackles. <laughs> That's kind of what he does almost on every play, right, Derek Henry? <laughs> um, anyway, so I, I just think the 49ers going forward have a really good shot to win the Super Bowl. I, I thought any team, honestly, or I think any team coming out of the NFC has the better shot to win the Super Bowl. But um, we'll talk more about the other teams going forward. So, anyway, let's move on to the second game, the night game. <laughs> the big game on Saturday night. Okay, so this is this is the big game, right? Baltimore versus Tennessee. Um, I, I was also at the wedding for this for, for the first half. Um, I was watching it on my phone for the most part, and then I snuck down to the hotel bar as soon as the second half started. Um, so, so my overall takeaway um, is that Baltimore looked a little bit rusty. They couldn't finish drives. And that defense wins championships, or I guess more appropriately, um, tackling is pretty important. Um, go, going 91 yards, the 91-yard drive that Baltimore had at the end of the first uh, half um, that ended in a field goal on second down was was pretty killer. Um, there were a lot of things that went wrong for Baltimore, but the fact that they couldn't get a touchdown and they went to halftime 14-6 to threw off their game plan, I'm pretty sure, because they only ran the ball uh, to running backs nine times. I think five were for Ingram and four were for Gus Edwards. I was going to say Gus Bradley. Jeez. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, just getting Baltimore out of um, out of their game plan, like, Tennessee obviously did uh was was huge and I think that's been talked about a lot but the fact that they were down 14 to 6 at halftime I think allowed for or, or made Baltimore uh, abandon their game plan more more than if they were to score a touchdown and, and they would be only down by like uh right four points so different um but besides that turnovers are pretty huge um Lamar had to do too much and they suffered for it and the defense right couldn't tackle Derrick Henry the biggest X factor in these games uh, has been the offensive line for Tennessee for sure, and Derrick Henry, which is crazy to some people. But if you've watched the AFC South for the past five years or so, or tuned into those hot garbage Thursday night games between the Titans and the Jaguars, you you know exactly what Derrick Henry could do. We saw at the end of last year for about a six games pace, um, and uh, or at least on a consistent basis for six games during half of the year after the Jaguars Thursday night game. Um, but basically, the way to stop Henry, and I've been watching for five years. Um, is if you tackle him before he gets up to speed, uh, you have to fight in the trenches, and with Tennessee's offensive line playing so well, it's been very difficult for them to do. And like I said before, I think the 49ers could do it with their 
I think, best offensive defensive line in the NFL. Um, but playing against the Chiefs, who have the 28th best run defense in the NFL, that's going to be a tall, tall task. Um, before, but before I talk too much about the Titans' uh, future prospects, I'll, I'll address the elephant in the room. Uh, this game certainly hurts the Lamar hype, the general Lamar hype, and gives fuel to, um, to his detractors. But they, they are absolutely his detractors. I mean, are absolutely and totally dumb as fuck. Uh, Lamar's 23 years old on a young offense that he controls all himself, and he's the biggest X factor in the NFL right now. Uh, the stat line was really good. Th- over 350 passing yards, 143 on the ground. He just had an uncharacteristically bad game with the football, turning it over twice. And when you kick field goals after driving 91 yards, uh, it's it's tough to, to win games, right? Um, but th- this was a fluke for the Ravens. Uh, I'm I'm not sure why they were so panicked and abandoned their game plan so early. It's probably because of Derrick Henry. <laughs> He's been the biggest X factor in the playoffs, right? Um, but I think um, if you look at the total body of work of uh, Lamar of this year and of the uh, Baltimore Ravens over this year, this is just a fluke of a game. Um, and it, it really sucks that they went out like this, but what are you going to do? I just don't think it's as simple as it's Lamar's fault. It's as much of the defense fault and as much of the credit to the Titans' offensive line, and Derrick Henry delivering two straight games, basically, of running the ball, like, 40 times. Uh, it, it, but it's just really insane to me that, that people would blame Lamar or start to give him this, or start to, you know, put on this narrative that Lamar can't win in the playoffs. It's only been, he's only been in the playoffs twice. Uh, Miles, uh, excuse me, Hollywood Brown, Miles, uh, not Miles Boykin. Is it Miles Boykin? Whatever, Boykin, the wide, the rookie wide receiver. They're both rookies, him and Hollywood Brown, Mark Andrews, and the rest of the tight end uh, group, Hayden Hurst, uh, Boyle, they're all in the rookie deals. Um, the only old guy on the team is Ingram, who I think was hurt this year. He didn't practice, or he was limited practice all week leading into this game. Um, basically, just besides Ingram, like Gus Edwards and, and Hill, they're all young players, so this offense is very young. The team has, a uh, at least position player-wise, their offensive line, that's a different story. Marshall Yonda, I think, is probably done this year, or for the rest of his career. Um, but this team has a bright future, and as much as this playoff game um, hurts, they'll likely be back here next year, and hopefully they'll be able to handle this three-week-long three bye. Now let's uh, let's move on to the Titans. As much as I want to compare this team uh, to the 2017 Jaguars, I just can't because they're better, <laughs> at least in the playoffs. I think the basic plan still remains the same, score early, run the ball, play good defense. And, it, and it's a winning formula, I think. Uh, the Jaguars didn't do that against the Steelers in week two of the 2017 playoffs. They had to adjust, which I think was pretty important for that team to win the game. And they won the game. It wasn't even close. Even the score was a lot closer than than uh, you would you would see by just looking at the box score. Uh, but the major difference is, is that the Titans stepped up here, um, creating turnovers and shutting down offenses, really the best offense in the league. Uh, the Titans are also running the ball way more efficiently, um, just like the Jags should have, especially against the Pats in the 2017 uh, championship game, which is probably the saddest day of my sports career besides the 2006 uh, Game 7 for the Mets against the Cardinals where Carlos Beltran saw this twelve to a 6-12 to 12 curveball just land right in the catcher's mitt, right in, this, in the middle of the plate. Anyway, I'm getting a little bit off. <laughs> I'm getting a little bit on my tangent here, but those are two saddest days in sports for me. Anyway, uh, the Titans are running the ball also because it works and they're able to wear down defenses um, and not because they're trying to mask a bad quarterback like the Jaguars doing, masking Blake Bortles. Uh, Tannehill's a, a fine quarterback in and of itself. He's probably one of the top seven, eight quarterbacks 
six quarterbacks in, in the playoffs this year, which I know isn't saying a lot considering there are only 12 teams in the playoffs, but I mean, when Bortles is in the playoffs, he's probably like the worst quarterback by far. Um, anyway, <laughs> let's, uh, let's keep talking. Um, yeah, Tannehill, he's just done such a good job. Uh, he dropped two early touchdowns on the Ravens. You know, Derek Henry didn't even score until he threw a touchdown, right? Um, so scoring two early uh, on two, well, the second touchdown was a quick 45-yard pass. Um, but scoring early really just drove the Ravens out of their out of their plan. That that was Tannehill. I know he only has, like, or he only had, like, 95 yards and less than 300 yards in the past two games. But he's been really, really important to the success of this team so far. Um, and obviously Derek Henry's, you know, the biggest X factor because he closes out the games. But looking ahead, um, the defense for the Titans, besides the offense, which we've talked about, I think, pretty extensively, um, besides that, the defense will have a lot harder time uh, guarding Mahomes and covering Mahomes than I think they will against uh, Lamar. Because no matter how much you run the ball, I think Andy Reid and Mahomes are going to throw the ball no matter what. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a lot tougher challenge for them going forward. Uh, but nothing's impossible this club, for this club, considering the high level of play, especially Taylor Luan. Now, he, I was pretty lukewarm on him. I thought he was still good going into uh, the playoffs, and at least he'd been good over the past few years. But, man, he has been playing outstanding in the playoffs so far, and the whole offensive line, right? So, we'll, we'll see how the Titans um, fare against the Chiefs. Obviously, if they can control the flow of the game in the same way that they did against the Ravens, they can win this game. And they can, uh, you know, <laughs> they can... I think right now the line is seven and a half for the Chiefs. The Chiefs are minus seven and a half, so they can definitely cover for sure if they control the game. And you know it's possible they did beat uh, the Chiefs in a shootout, thirty-five to thirty-two, uh, the last time they met, which was Patrick Mahomes' uh, return. So we'll see. I, I think I will the next time, or it'll have to be before they play the game. But the next time I come on and do a podcast, I'm gonna be rewatching the Titans Kansas City game, and I'll I'll share my opinions there. Uh, anyway, let's move on to the next game, the first Sunday game. Okay, so um, let's talk about this not-surprising game, Kansas City versus Houston. Um, it's really no surprise to me if you just look at the final score. Um, the over was probably the easiest bet you could have taken all weekend, especially with all the defense going on this week, or just generally in the playoffs, how well defenses have been playing. I guess you could maybe see that the line would be lower um just because you know the the normal nfl population probably doesn't or probably sees that it's like oh this is a defensive matchup especially because houston might still carry that that connotation of having a good defense especially with jj watt but anyway this blew the fuck out of the uh over so there you go um so if baltimore had a had a pretty bad experience like i think they had with the bye week the chiefs had the exact opposite they need, 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 needed Mahomes to be healthy, which I'm just straight up not convinced he was all year, or else we would have seen more of this kind of domination from their offense. The Houston defense is probably the worst uh, defense coming into the playoffs besides the Eagles, and even, you know, the Eagles defense was close to that. Uh, the pass defense has been bad all year, and they basically have three good players on defense if you include J.J. Watt, which is Merciless and Reed, uh, Whitney Merciless, and I keep want to say Eric Reed, but it's a second-year player. I'm totally blanking on his name right now. It's fine. Um, I mean, I also think Houston's offense is really good. They arguably have one of the best, if not the best, wide receiver in the league. And one of the best quarterbacks in the league, especially for how young he is. And when Fuller is healthy, he can uh, almost be like the game changer X factor that uh, Houston really needs to put this offense over the hill. Uh, but anyway, um, it just... 
I guess the offense is like a 35-point offense and not like a 51-point a offense. So I don't think it was ever going to be a close game. Um, Houston's defense was never going to be able to keep up with the second-best offense in the AFC. And like I said before, the Texans' defense just isn't good enough to stop Mahomes when he's playing like Mahomes and after a long rest, considering he's been so hurt this year. Um, it's it's weird that I don't hear enough how improved the Chiefs' defense is this year and what that means for them in the playoffs. I mean, they were one touchdown away from the Super Bowl last year. Like, they went to overtime with the Patriots. They weren't that far off. And their defense is markedly improved uh, than it was last year. So I, I feel like I could see this coming from a mile away. If I were to you know, re redo my predictions at the beginning of the playoffs. I'd probably go Chiefs 49ers, but that's that's on me. Um anyway, uh so so looking forward, the Texans have a good bit of cap room uh for the next year or two that they can use to help the offensive line and basically all of the defense, because they ain't gonna be able to draft any uh young studs after giving up so much draft capital for Tunzel and Stills. They only have one pick in the top one hundred this year. And next year, they'll be missing the first and second round picks. Although, to be fair, they have the 104, 102nd pick. So, it's like almost two picks in the top 100. Um, but, even besides that, they went for a more win-now approach this year. And it's made them top dog in the AFC South this year. But they still haven't matched the success in recent years of the Titans this year, the Colts last year, and the Jags, Jags in 2017. Uh, not a lot of... Um, just there's just not a lot to show even though they have the best quarterback in the division and they don't have any draft capital going forward and big contracts to probably pay out in the future currently they would be my uh, pick to repeat as division champs uh but there's a long way to go especially when, when Deshaun gets hit as much as he does season in and out he was sacked the eighth most time this year and the most last year I I just really think that given how often they've won the division over the past few years they just haven't had anything to show for it right um, even if they're the top dog and winning the AFC South all the time, this is really, they don't really get much after that. Um, let's see. Regarding the Chiefs, uh, I have going forward, uh, I have to, I, I mean, I have to look ahead going forward, right? I, I have to rewatch the Titans-Chiefs game, um, because I think that'll be really important in determining how I feel about the AFC Championship. Um, both teams, like, have a history, too, which is pretty fun. Um, the Titans beat the Chiefs. Two years ago, when Mariota threw a threw a touchdown to himself, the, and and the Chiefs were up like twenty four seven at halftime or some crazy like that, when the Titans came back. So we'll we'll see how this goes this year. But honestly, it should be pretty exciting. I think the Titans, hmm, besides the Ravens, are the best team in the playoffs, uh, or, or were the best team in the playoffs. I think it it probably went hard to do like a power rankings right now on the fly. It would probably be Ravens, Chiefs, and then the Titans especially with the way their defense is playing. And I, and I think we knew their defense was good coming in. But uh, we'll see if they're able to slow down the Chiefs' game plan in the uh, the next uh, round of the playoffs, which I think will just be generally, like, one of the best... Uh, probably one of the best AFC Championship games we'll get. Actually, that's not true. Last year's AFC Championship game was pretty sweet. But what makes this AFC Championship game even better is that we won't have Big Ben, Peyton Manning, or uh, Tom Brady in it. And I think that's, that's worth it. I think that'll be a lot more fun. Anyway, let's talk about the last game, and then um, we'll almost be done with this podcast. Move on to the last game of these playoffs, which is Seattle and Green Bay. Um, it was a game I was pretty confident in. Um, the Packers have always looked like a good team this year. Um, and I'm I'm only a little bit worried uh, about them going going forward. Like, I think they have a good shot, although not a great shot to beat the 49ers. I'm, I'm worried a little bit about the coaching. I felt that like they were a little too conservative 
when they were up big in the middle of the game, middle towards end of the game, but they finished really strong, and, and they've been doing that a lot this year. They've been winning a lot of games grittily, or very gritty games with Rodgers, not pulling the same kind of magic he was able to pull out in his early 30s, late 20s, but with him still throwing sick dimes to Jimmy Graham and uh, and Devontae Adams just carving up and, and Rodgers being able to put the ball exactly where it needs to be. Uh, so I'm confident that they'll be able to give the 49ers a, a run for their money, absolutely, because, I mean, they're the two-seed, right? Uh, but I, I'm, I'm worried that LaFleur might not have it in him to get it done if it comes down to a big coaching decision to... to um, to decide the fate of this game. Um, just looking forward, I, I feel like I don't need to talk about the game in and of itself too much. I think the Packers generally dominated the beginning and ends of the game, and while Seattle got close, and Russell got close to the point where he could pull out some late-game heroics, it, it it wasn't meant to be in the way that the Packers are just a better team, and Rodgers can, if he needs to improvise and outduel Russell, he definitely can with a better team at his disposal. Um, let's see. Let's look forward. Um, the Packers, I think, are outmatched at almost every position group, although I really, I do love the Packers' secondary. I'm a huge Jair Alexander fan. Um, I, I know they can get pressure on the quarterbacks, and Darius Smith was one of the best free agent acquisitions, uh, of the past year, and he's, he's, he especially showed that last game where I think he had nine pressure. Was it nine pressures? Maybe it's nine pressures all year. I read that on PFF somewhere. He, he just, he, he did a really good job, um, in, in the regular season and in the playoffs. Um, but... I just think LaFleur is going to be out, uh, outmatched by, by Shanahan, and I really want to see like an Andy Reid-Shanahan Super Bowl. Don't we all deserve that, right, to see good coaches back in, back in the Super Bowl with really good teams? Um, and let's not get it twisted. The Packers do have great playmakers on the defensive side of the ball, like I've mentioned, um, and this is probably the best NFC Championship game we were going to get, although I was confident the NFC Championship game would be exciting anyway. It was going to happen. Um, I just didn't think that Seattle really deserved this, con- even considering how well they've played over the past, I don't know, all the season. They've had a really, they've played a really tough division, and they played a lot of tough matchups, and they're still able to finish with 11 wins. Um, it, it, it was a, it was a good run for Seattle, but l- looking forward for them, they have a really good core of young defensive playmakers. They need to keep Clowney, for the love of God, um, but... Going forward, I, I'm pretty confident. I don't think, like, some fans have claimed that they're wasting Russell Wilson's, um, well, it's not really his prime, but his, his descent, even though it's still a long and probably will be fruitful descent. Uh, they've got two stars. I mean, I think DK's going to be a star, but they, uh, Tyler Lockett's also really good. Being a wide receiver, it sucks that they lost two running backs coming into the playoffs, and Marshawn, while he scored four touchdowns, I don't think was nearly as big of an impact as Chris Carson would have been. Obviously, if you're watching Carson all year, you could tell. Um, but yeah, going forward a good core and, uh, I, I think they could be back just like, uh, just like Baltimore will be back next year. I think these teams are, are, are almost destined to, to, to get back to the playoffs considering their young cores and their good quarterbacks. Um, I guess the last thing I should talk about regarding this game was the Jimmy Graham. I'm pretty sure it was Jimmy Graham first down. It, it was someone where it was really, I'm pretty sure it was Jimmy Graham, but I, I, I don't think it was a first down. I think the refs got it wrong, but Overturning it, I think, would have been tough, or was tough, generally, even though it was almost, almost, like, right in your face. I don't know, depending on where the, the ball was, and it looked like Jimmy Graham had it, or the player, I'm pretty sure it was Jimmy Graham again, had it, like, tucked into his chest, so it, it couldn't have been that much farther, like, 
out like past him if that makes a lot of sense i i just don't think it was a first down. i think they got it wrong um but overturning it was tough because overturning anything especially spotting is super difficult um it sucks but the packers definitely deserve to win the game so i don't think anyone should be complaining okay now real quick before i do my little end segment um there's been some big news since I've been recording this podcast. We had Luke Keekley retire. Um, we had Alex Cora out as the uh, the manager for the Red Sox and Josh Donaldson signed a four-year deal with the Twins. Huge news. Um, and I do want to talk about it and give like my real quick reactions. Not a lot in depth, but I a lot of these came out of left field, except the Cora thing, right? And I, I want my brand to be a little less reactionary, so I don't love giving hot takes without doing a good amount of research and, and getting or gathering a lot of opinions. So I wouldn't take what I'm about to say as like authoritative fact, and I'm going to revisit it probably the next time I record. But um, just real quick, Luke Keekley retiring at 28 is pretty sad. It's probably to do with the concussions he's sustained over the past few years and the injuries he's dealt with. And that really blows because he was... I, I love middle linebackers, especially because they're so cerebral. Um, and he he was one of the best, I think, at that. He was defensive player of the year, rookie of the year, seven-time all-pro, or I'm not all-pro, a pro bowler. Um, his impact on the game will be missed, I think. Um, I hope he... I, I'm pretty sure he did the right thing for his mental health and for his health generally, so good for him. I'm sure he's made a good amount of money. Hopefully he's invested it wisely. Um, but yeah, anyway, I'll talk more about this probably next time. Uh, Cora out as the manager seems appropriate um apparently this is a mutual decision and it may very well have been a mutual decision but i think it was inevitable especially when all the firings and all the the harsh penalties came down on houston cora wasn't long for uh for his his uh for his job wasn't going to be around and i i remember reading the report that uh, it was mentioned that he was pretty instrumental in implementing this system uh, of cheating in Houston. So I think it was just inevitable. But the fact that it came today on, on a day where lots of sports news is going on was interesting. Uh, the last thing I'll talk about is Donaldson. Um, I read it real quick. I'm just going to do a quick Google search to make sure I'm not talking out of my ass. But um, Josh Donaldson, I think, signed a four-year deal with... Uh, yeah, four-year deal with the Twins. He had a great resurgence... Last year, this deal is apparently, yeah, four years, $92 million from the New York Post. Donaldson was, is 34. He had 37 home runs last year. He raked in Atlanta. And I was just surprised that he lasted this long. And I'm still surprised Ozuna and Castellanos are lasting this long. long excuse me. Um, I wanted to do a breakdown uh, the next time I record on NFL, or I'm sorry, MLB Free Agents. And Donaldson was probably, like, my third or fourth favorite guy still out there. But, um... You know, he signed with the, with the Twins. Good for them. I guess he'll be playing DH because Sano will probably be the third baseman, the general third baseman, right, regularly. Um, yeah, this is pretty sweet. Uh, I'm happy that, the, yeah, for uh, considering I'm a Mets fan, if you didn't know, I think I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but getting Donaldson out of the NL East is pretty great for me. I'm pretty happy about it. But I'll, I'll talk more about it probably um, next podcast. Uh, anyway... Thanks, guys, for um, tuning in. I've got a super cool professionally done uh, outro that y'all can listen to. So um, it was good talking. This is the longest podcast I think I've ever done. And the longest or the longest podcast I've done on this. or the, Yeah, the longest podcast I've done on this podcast specifically. Maybe not the longest one I've ever done. 
but definitely the longest one I've done just by myself talking into a microphone. So I hope you enjoyed it, and I uh, hope you have a good night, and um, yeah, peace. That's it for this episode of the Bacon Game Sports Pod. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And follow Jesse on Twitter at E-S-S-E-J-T-H-E-S-L.